Broncos cheerleaders, and you're listening to Sports Crunch with Decrom. This is Sports Crunch with Decrom. I'm your host, David Cromwell. And it's been a super fun, legendary summer here on the program, highlighted by our Beyond the Chat series with the 2022 Denver Broncos cheerleaders who, like everybody in America, are super pumped for right now. Why so? As of today, we could say the three most beautiful words in the English language. Football is back. As of this moment, all 32 NFL teams have reported to training camp in full and are ready to bang the pads of the summer heat. And in that spirit, for the second consecutive year, and we hope to make this an annual tradition, we are pleased to have special friend of the pod, Mark Schofield of the USA Today Touchdown Wire with us to answer some of the biggest burning questions hovering over certain teams as the 2022 regular season draws closer. Mark, it is always the greatest honor to have you and your incredible in-depth football mind with us. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, David. You're Far too kind with the, the, the words there, but uh, I appreciate you having me on. It's always a blast catching up with you and, and doing shows with you and stuff like that and get a chance to chat before shows. So I'm excited to be back, excited for this to become a little bit of a tradition here and ready to dive in. I'm ready to dive in too, and let's start that dive with all teams that have second-year quarterbacks. And last season, the Jaguars were the dumpster fire of dumpster fires due to the epic failure that was the Urban Meyer experiment. And likely as a result of that, Trevor Lawrence, for most of the season, did not look like the generational quarterback prospect he was hyped up to be. However, in the Jags' stunning victory over the Colts in Week 18, we finally saw the Trevor Lawrence we expected to see as he threw for 223 yards, a couple touchdowns, and posted a 111.8 pass rating. That performance was perfectly symbolized by that touchdown pass to Marvin Jones in the corner of the end zone after that botched snap. Now with Urban Meyer gone and Doug Peterson now running the show in Duval County, do you expect to see the week 18 version of Trevor Lawrence for the vast majority of the 2022 season? Frankly, I expect to see an even better version of Lawrence than that quarterback we saw in that season finale. And and you're right about, you know, the play you highlighted there, you're right about that game. That was kind of, you know, the highlight of that season. I, I think it's important to sort of look at Lawrence's rookie season and realize he was one of the quarterbacks most victimized by drops. That organization from top to bottom sort of let him down, whether it was the Urban Meyer situation to begin with, whether it was some of the play of the people around him on the field, whether it was some of the play calls as well. But I think in that season finale against the Colts, you saw the promise of what he offers. And I think now in Doug Peterson's hands, you have the ability to believe that you now have a head coach with a proven track record of quarterback development at the national football league level. I mean, say what you want about Urban Meyer and his offenses and how he's developed quarterbacks at the collegiate level. Doug Peterson had Carson Wentz playing like an MVP in 2017. You know, however, Wentz's career has gone since then Wentz was playing at a very high level. When you look at conceptually, the things that I anticipate them doing with Lawrence, a lot of multi-level reads, a lot of vertical concepts in the passing game. You know, Peterson kind of kind of likes to pair some quick game stuff with some shot plays downfield. Lawrence, I think, is a very schematically diverse quarterback. I've been on your show before talking about him, and that's one, I, one of his strengths as a, a prospect coming out of Clemson. And so not only do I, like I said, David, expect to see that version of Week 18, I expect to see an even better version of Lawrence this season. Oh, as do I, especially considering the fact that he was 
victimized by drops and they made those upgrades in the uh, wide receiver core with uh, Christian Kirk at all. And uh, as long as uh, there's a regression to mean with those drops, we should see the Trevor Lawrence we all expected him to be. And moving on to the New York Jets, who have very quietly built an insanely, and I mean an insanely talented roster, at least on paper these past two years. By adding Brees Hall and Garrett Wilson on offense in the draft, the Jets have as wide of an array of playmakers as almost any team in the entire league. And there is excellent, and I mean excellent promise, for gangrene on the defensive side of the ball. The selection of Jermaine Johnson, who was an absolute steal at 26 overall, might be the final piece that gives the Jets the deepest pass rush in the entire NFL, plus the additions of Sauce Garner and DJ Reed to the secondary gives that unit serious potential to catapult itself to the top half of the NFL, if not higher. But it will be all for naught if Zach Wilson doesn't take a huge step forward. As rough as Trevor Lawrence looked last season, there is a strong case to be made that Wilson looked even worse. Based on your film study of Zach Wilson, what single aspect of his game must he improve dramatically in order to have a successful sophomore pro campaign? Yeah, David, it's a, it's a very important question. I think it comes down to his comfort in the pocket. And you could see it last year, early in the year, where, you know, for example, his game against Denver, where he was completely unsettled in the pocket, really didn't trust the protection in front of him. And he was cut and drop short, speeding himself up, speeding his footwork up to the point where he's looking to throw before the routes have even started to break, before they've even thought about breaking. Like, he's sped himself up to the point where he's basically deconstructed the route concepts and made life so much tougher on him as a quarterback. Now, what was interesting about his year last year is he missed a little bit of time. And when he came back, he was a little bit more comfortable than what he was when he first sort of started out. When you saw that Denver game, you really saw that sort of sped up footwork. He misses a couple of games and then he comes back and you see him a little bit more comfortable, right? misses four games in Little Street and comes back against Houston, you know, and he fares pretty well. And then a game against Philly, even though they lose, he throws two for one. And then the last three games of the season, you know, what touchdown, no interceptions, a touchdown, no interceptions, a touchdown, no interceptions. And they go, you know, one of two in those games, but you saw a better version of Zach Wilson down the stretch. And so I've often seen David with younger quarterbacks. We saw it with, you know, Josh Allen, his rookie season, they get hurt. They get a chance to sort of sit down and catch their breath. They come back and you see a little bit improved play because they kind of had a chance to sort of study their film and learn from some of the lessons. And so I think comfort in the pocket is going to be a big thing. And also in tandem with that, what can they put in front of them? That's all, probably the biggest question facing the New York Jets in my mind because of the comfort level in the pocket you need to see from Zach Wilson. Can they protect him? And it might come down to a Kai Becton. You know, the, right now we're hearing that he's probably going to play right tackle. Can he finally put together the first round draft pick kind of season we've been waiting for from Makai Becton. If we see that Wilson's going to be comfortable in the pocket and all the picks that they've made, like you sort of teed up there are going to help this team live up to a little bit of the preseason hype we're seeing. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you're a partner, Doug Farrar at the USA Today Touchdown Wire. He is very bullish on this uh, New York Jets defense, as am I. Like I said, they might have the deepest pass rush of the league now with Jermaine Johnson in the fold of Carl Lawson uh, coming back from injury. And you can't forget those uh, underrated additions to the secondary that they made with uh, DJ Reed and obviously the selection of Sauce Garner at four overall. Just how great can this Jets defense be? I think it could be fantastic, David. And, you know, a lot of it might depend on, look, if Carl Lawson comes back completely healthy, you've got a potential for sort of your speed rush package with Lawson, John Franken Myers and Johnson, uh, Jermaine Johnson on the field. 
know, those are three guys can certainly get after the passer. Johnson showed it on film. Part of the reason Doug is so high on the Jets is he loved Johnson. That was his, it was his edge one. Um, and, and you could see why. And so to get him late in the first round, like you mentioned, is a steal. When I first turned on Sars Gardner's film last fall, you know, I first got a real, my chance to really sort of dive into him. I said immediately, look, the Jets are going to draft him in the first round. Like he is a Robert Sala corner head to toe like head to fingertips like he just fits the mold lawn he's like a young Richard Sherman and Richard was on with Doug Farrar and they did a show together and you know Sherman himself said yeah like that guy reminds me of me he's my CB1 and the scheme fit made so much sense to me so I mean I remember when I first started doing mocks with Gardner at 10 to the Jets and Jets fans are like there's absolutely no way I kept telling him look you're gonna love this guy once you watch him he's a perfect fit for their defense and so you look at what they've added. You look at the potential here. Like, do some guys have to step up? Do rookies have to step up? Absolutely. But on paper, this has the potential to be a very good defense. We are in agreement there. And as you and I said last summer, the 49ers had to play Trey Lance as soon as possible his rookie season. Yet he only started two games, and the 49ers ended up making another deep playoff run that ended mostly due to Jimmy Garoppolo's limitations. Now, as the 49ers made clear to Jimmy Garoppolo this morning, they have officially begun the Trey Lance era. But that said, there have been various rumblings out of San Francisco throughout the offseason that suggested that some in the building weren't quite convinced that Trey Lance was 100% ready to be handed the keys. Nonetheless, let's cut through that chatter with your quarterback expertise here. Based on what you saw from Trey Lance on film in his two 2021 starts, do you think he is anywhere near close to ready to take command of this 49ers offense? I think he's ready. I do think he's ready, and I'm somebody that thought he was ready before he was even drafted by the 49ers. The summer before he came out, I said, look, the North Dakota State offense that he was running in college, it's very similar, at least conceptually at his core, to what Kyle Shanahan does with the 49ers. And so, you know, I, I've been a believer in Trey Lance. Now, are there areas where he needs to be needs to improve? Absolutely. You watch his first start. You know, I rewatched it today, that first start against Arizona, and there are moments when he's not trusting his eyes. There are moments when he's slow to make decisions. There are moments when he's slow to get through reads. I thought they had a better game plan for him in his second start against Houston. Now, part of that feeling could just be it was against the Houston Texans. I mean, it's, it wasn't the best defense. And so, you know, the fact that he looked a little bit better might have something to do with that. But I do think he's ready. I think there are areas where he needs to improve. I know there's been a lot of rumblings, like you said, about, you know, arm fatigue and things like that. I know they're trying to, like, tighten up him mechanically a little bit because you know I'm somebody that's a firm believer in mechanics don't matter until they matter but when you have that sort of loopy elongated a little bit slower delivery and you're struggling to read things quickly you put those two things together you can have all the velocity in the world but it still might make you a half second late on throws when you really need to be quicker and a half second ahead of those throws and so you're gonna have to watch for that but I think he's ready I think he's in good hands. I think they have talent around him. I, I, I think, you know, provided they get something done with Debo, he's going to have great weapons to throw to in the passing game. He's going to have a great offensive mind doing things for him on the, play, on the whiteboard. And so I'm still a believer in Lance. As am I, plus uh, the 49ers said today that they are very optimistic they'll be able to get something done with Debo Samuel on the uh, contract run. And now from the 49ers to my 1B team, the Chicago Bears, where Justin Fields was a prospect that you and many others in the draft Twitter community were, and I assume are still very high on, but he couldn't have landed in a worse spot than the Bears, especially in terms of coaching, where Matt Nagy constantly designed plays for him that were far more suited to the skills of someone like Andy Dalton. I'm sure you'd agree with that. 
And uh, while it's great that Matt Nagy is gone, new general manager Ryan Poles completely gutted what he saw as an aging roster and rightfully so, dare I say, but he left fields with a rather underwhelming supporting cast consisting of Darnell Mooney, Byron Pringle, Equinemius St. Brown, rookie Valus Jones Jr. and Cole Komet. Thus, it might be difficult to realistically evaluate Justin Fields for a second consecutive season. But in terms of realistic expectations, how would you characterize a successful 2022 campaign for Justin Fields? I mean, at the forefront, you know, it's going to be difficult, like you said, to evaluate him. You know, I'm, I'm still a believer in Justin Fields. He was, you know, my QB2 coming out right after Trevor Lawrence. And, you know, somebody that I still am high on from a talent perspective, like you said, wasn't in the best of situations as a rookie um, in that Maggie, Matt Nagy offense. And I've had a lot of Bears fans in recent days kind of ask me, like, what is it that Matt Nagy tried to do? And, you know, Matt Nagy tried to answer things with, you know, answer questions, answer problems, solve problems with sort of a basic scheme at, the, at its core. I, I thought there was more things they could do conceptually to sort of help out whether it was Mitchell Trubisky or Justin Fields and, and Nagy sort of never was able to, to do that. Or maybe, you know, he tried during the practice weeks and tried to put things in front of these quarterbacks and just didn't feel comfortable calling those games on those plays on Sundays, but it was a bad situation. And it hasn't that it hasn't improved that much. I mean, a lot of bears fans were hopeful that they would add more weapons. I know there's some excitement about, you know, Jones out of Tennessee, you know, there's some excitement about Mooney, their expectations that Cole Komet will be able to take on a bigger role, but you would have liked to have seen them add more. And then the fear in the back of my mind, anytime you have, you know, a new general manager, a new head coach come in when they've got the young quarterback, are is this their guy? Was this their guy? And you would think that with polls, you know, with Everflux, when they came in, when they interviewed, they said all the right things about Justin Fields. They said, look, we're going to fix him. We're going to work with them. He's going to be our guy. We're believers in him. Are they really committed to Justin Fields or not? Now, maybe they are. And maybe this is a multi-year process where, you know, they're looking at this as like the next two, three years, they're going to start to build around Justin Fields. And, you know, maybe in 23, 24, they're going to be where they want to be from a roster construction standpoint. But maybe they're not. And you and I both know that the next draft class of quarterbacks has a lot of hype around it. There are a lot of expectations around it, whether it's Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Will Levis, Phil Jakovic, Anthony Richardson. Like there's a lot of talent in next year's class. And if you're looking at a situation where, you know, maybe they go three and 13 or three and 14 and, you know, they have a very early pick next year, what do they do? You know, do they still stick with Justin Fields or not? And can he succeed in this environment? So one winded way of answering your question, a successful year for Justin Fields is one where they don't draft a quarterback next year, you know, and what does he have to do to sort of get there? He has to show enough in the hands of Luke Getzi, the new offensive coordinator that, you know, last year was an aberration in this new system with new coaching around him, even though there might not be weapons, he can be an effective quarterback. He can work through reads and get the ball out quickly. He can be a dynamic playmaker with his legs. If he does that and they go ahead and roll with him in the next couple of years, it'll have been a successful season. I completely agree there. And on to your New England Patriots, where no rookie quarterback played better last season than Mac Jones, who I personally believe will have a similar career to Derek Carr and Matt Ryan. And that's not bad company whatsoever. But that said, there was buzz at the combine, according to a Benjamin Albright of 850 KOA in Denver, suggesting that many around the league were convinced that Mac Jones would experience a sophomore slump given the departure of Josh McDaniels. Moreover, the Patriots have no offensive coordinator and previous head coaching busts, Joe Judge and Matt Patricia, who have little to no experience coaching that side of the ball, will run the offense 
offense this season in New England. But if there's anybody that deserves the benefit of the doubt, it is obviously Bill Belichick, who absolutely raved about Mac Jones' work this offseason uh, this morning. How confident are you that Mac Jones, at least for the most part, will avoid that dreaded sophomore slump in 2022? You know, David, I'm pretty confident. And, and, you know, I know a lot's been said and written about, you know, the fact that they don't have a coordinator. They don't have an offensive coordinator. They don't have a defensive coordinator. This is a, this is a Belichick staple. I mean, you go back, you mentioned Josh McDaniels. You know, in 08, when he left to coach Denver, Bill O'Brien took on the title of offensive assistant and quarterbacks coach. He was their offensive coordinator. But for two years, he had those two titles, even though he's calling the plays, even though he was offensive coordinator. And then in the third year, they sort of gave him the, okay, now you're the offensive coordinator situation. And so, you know, the fact that Joe Judge is in that offensive assistant slash quarterback coach role, he's the, he's going to be calling plays. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is, you know, sunshine and roses. Like, I have concerns that any time you have a young quarterback, you want things – you know, as consistent around them as possible. And so wh- whoever, you know, whoever was coming in to call plays, whether McDaniels leaves and, you know, take a brilliant play call, say for whatever reason, Kyle Shanahan decides, you know what, I'm tired of being a head coach. I just want to call, call plays. And he comes in as their offense coordinator. I'd still have a little bit of concern because you want that consistency around the quarterback. But what I think gives me optimism about Mac Jones is what we've seen from him last year. And what we've heard about, you know, him, whether it was Belichick today, other people in that building that have been talking about the work that he's been putting in, because the the argument for Mac Jones, he was the floor quarterback, right? Wilson, Lance, Fields, all the other guys, even Lawrence, in a sense, you know, they had great ceilings. Jones, it was the floor. He was ready. He was ready on day one. He was going to be able to play early. And we saw that last year. But the question was always, what's his ceiling look like? I'd have people in the league tell me, yeah, yeah, this is fine. Whatever. Talk to me in three years. What does it look like then? But then you see him last year and he's a bit more athletic, a bit more velocity on throws. Like, like he, he surpassed some of the expectations in areas we thought were weaknesses of him coming out of Alabama. That makes me think the ceiling is higher than people thought that he's going to be able to go beyond what, you know, that upper range of outcomes was when people were looking at him pre-draft. And so are there areas he has to improve? Absolutely. Pre-snap pressure identification is a huge one. I wrote about that today. Yeah, he's got to get more velocity on throws. He missed some opportunities last year. The interception against the Bills in the playoffs, an early throw, you know, in the season opener against Miami, for example, where, you know, balls just weren't getting there. He just needed a little bit more zip on throws. He cleans those areas up. He'll avoid that sophomore slump. Oh, absolutely. And as I alluded to, he might not be uh, Patrick Mahomes or, Josh Allen or Justin Herbert or Joe Burrow or where we expect Trevor Lawrence to be. But if he turns into like a Matt Ryan or Derek Carr, this pick turns out to be a home run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when, when you consider that they sat at 15, didn't give anything up and drafted him at 15, you know, if he turns out to have that sort of career arc, Ryan Carr, you know, I, I think they will take that in a heartbeat. Now, you know, doesn't mean that he's absolutely going to get there with certainty, but if that's the road he goes down, the Patriots will have considered that pick a win. Oh, absolutely. And I personally have that expectation for him that he turns into a quarterback on the level of uh, those two who have had great careers in the National Football League. And now from the uh, second year quarterbacks to what I call the old Lions, and I'm talking about Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, of course. And uh, we start in Green Bay, where despite constant nonstop trade talk, Aaron Rodgers decided that he would finish his career exactly where it started in Green Bay with the Packers. 
but the four-time NFL MVP may be facing the biggest challenge of his career to date because the best wide receiver he's ever had, Devontae Adams, forced his way out of Green Bay to reunite with his best friend from college in Derek Carr. And this leaves Rodgers with arguably one of the five worst wide receiver rooms in the entire NFL with Alan Lazard, Sammy Watkins, talented but super raw rookie Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs et al. But, and schematically speaking, how would you anticipate Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers to work around the limitations of their wide receiver room this season? I mean, I think they're going to do it in a couple of different ways. I mean, I, I think, first of all, when you have the right, the right wrist of Aaron Rodgers, you can fix a lot of things with that right wrist. You can fix a lot of things with your ability to throw the football and put it anywhere it needs to be to any level of the field. I think you're going to see a lot of play action. You're going to see a lot of boot action. You're going to see a lot of misdirection type designs where the receivers are going to run their one row. Like maybe they'll have some stuff where you're going to have adjustments based on coverage and things like that, but they're really going to sort of lock things in and just say, look, we're going to use misdirection and I can sort of create opportunities in the passing game where you're running the post, you're running it over. Like we've got it set up. Aaron's going to figure sort of Aaron's going to do the sort of conversion stuff in his head. You know, he's going to manipulate guys with his eyes. They're going to sort of solve it with his experience and sort of let these guys just have sort of simplified route trees, simplified concepts. I think that's probably what they're going to do at the start of the season. Now, can you sort of build a whole plane out of the black box, so to speak? Maybe, you know, but I, I think it's important to remember their defense looks fantastic. You know, their defense looks really good on paper and, Doug Farrar wrote earlier this spring that like the defense might be what gets them back to the Super Bowl. You look at the additions they made, you know, Devontae White putting them next to Kenny, Kenny Clark, Quay Walker on the second level, you know, getting Jair Alexander back and fully healthy for the entire season. Like Eric Stokes is an extremely underrated corner. This could be a very good defense, David. And so you might have a situation where Rogers doesn't need to win every game with his right arm. They can capitalize on some short fields. And so, you know, it, it might look similar to, you know, you mentioned these old Lions, right? It might look similar to perhaps, you know, some of the earlier Brady years where it's like, yeah, this is still an elite quarterback, but the defense is carrying their weight too. Do not forget Rashawn Gary either. He has become a stud coming off the edge for that Green Bay Packers defense. And I kind of had this thought earlier today. Another comparison I made in my head for this year's Packers is the 2015 Denver Broncos, except that Aaron Rodgers is not necessarily falling off a cliff as much as Peyton Manning was that year. Peyton Manning had to significantly adjust his game and become Alex Smith 2.0 at the end of the, that Super Bowl winning season uh, for the Broncos. So if uh, the Packers need to look into recent history, I think it's the 2015 Broncos. Yeah, I mean, that could be a very good comparison, David. And like you said, I mean, obviously Rodgers is in better physical shape than we saw Madden in that year, but that's a team that certainly relied on their defense to get them where they needed to be, you know, and, and they got what they could out of that offense. I, I think there's potential for, you know, some manufactured touches for Watson. I, I love the, like the pick of Romeo Dubs, you know, Watkins, he's already on the NFI list. I mean, to start training camp. And so, I mean, I don't think expectations are huge there, but you know, if you get something out of Watson, if you get something out of dubs, if you get Robert Tunyon back and healthy, who was a big part of their passing game last year, you know, I think there's some things they can do and don't count out guys like Aaron Jones out of the backfield. I mean, he's a very good receiver out of the backfield. They like to use him on wheel routes. And so they'll be able to find some ways to manufacture some explosive plays in the passing game. It might not be a dynamic offense like we've seen in the past couple of years with Adams, but they'll find a way to make some explosive plays happen downfield. They most certainly will, especially with Aaron Rodgers still throwing that rock. 
And on to Tampa, where after a 40-day retirement, Tom Brady changed his mind and decided to return to the gridiron at 45 years young. And he and his Bucks are one of the favorites, if not the favorite, to win the NFC Championship this season. However, they will have to get there without Bruce Arians, who is no longer on the sidelines, and Gronk, who is likely retired for good this time. That's why, at least in part, many are reportedly betting the under on the Bucks' 2022 over-under Vegas win total of 11.5. Do you think that's a smart bet to make? I never bet against Tom Brady, my friend. I mean, look at how well he played last year. I mean, he was playing perhaps some of his best football when he decided to hand him up, even though it was just for 40 days or so. Now, in terms of are you going to take the under, looking at their schedule, it's got some rough ones out of the gate. Like you open at Dallas, you know, on a Sunday night. You'll go to New Orleans, so you get the back-to-back, you know, road games out of the gate. And New Orleans has seemingly had Tom Brady's number. Then you get the Packers at home and the Chiefs at home. That's a pretty tough four-game slate to open things up with. Now, they've certainly got some winnable games after that. That next three-game stretch, Atlanta, Pittsburgh, and Carolina, they could win those three. But then it's Baltimore, the Rams, and Seattle. Like, there are some tough games on this schedule. But still, I'm not betting against Tom Brady. Like it's hard for me to do that. Now, maybe the proverbial cliff finally hits. People have been saying for the past 10 years, he's going to hit that cliff. And we are just two weeks away from his 45th birthday. And yeah, as somebody that's seven months older than Tom Brady, both of my knees and my shoulders hurt right now, David, I don't know how he's doing it at 45. So maybe the cliff finally happens until I see him go over it though. I'm not betting against him. Oh, I'm not betting against Tom Brady either. And another lame reason why people are uh, betting the under is because they think that Todd Bowles is a terrible head coach. Are you kidding? Todd Bowles got a great season out of a Jets team led by Ryan Fitzpatrick. And the way that front office managed the team during his time there, he never got a fair shot. The notion that there's going to be a big drop off from Bruce Arians to Todd Bowles is absolute baloney. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And and let's, let's not forget now, Part of the, you know, the recipe down there in Tampa Bay right now is the offensive coordinator. Byron Leftwich is still there. You know, I I think between Bowles and Leftwich, they're in extremely good hands. I think you're absolutely right about the situation with the Jets in New York. That Bowles had that team playing extremely well to get the raw end of the deal up there. And I think, look, you know, Bruce Arians did right by him. Wanted to make sure that, yeah, you know, he's getting a new gig. Like, he's going to be taken care of. I thought that was a very classy move by Bruce Arians. So, yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm betting the over on this one total. It's a tough schedule, but I'm a believer in Tom Brady. Let's put it that way. As am I. And the division that will headline the entire NFL this season is obviously the AFC West, which uh, arguably has more talent than any other division ever had in modern NFL history. And we start in Kansas City, where for six consecutive seasons, the Chiefs have been the kings of the AFC West, but that streak is now in more jeopardy than ever before, given the massive improvements their three-division rivals made, and we'll get to those in just a little bit, and the departure of Tyree Kill. Once the Chiefs made that trade, some people on Twitter overreacted and said the Chiefs were like, at best, the third best team of the division. However, I may be a Broncos fan, but I don't see it at all. Patrick Mahomes showed last year he could lead more methodical drives characterized by attacking the defense on underneath routes, and he still has more than enough firepower with Travis Kelsey, Juju Smith-Schuster, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and promising rookie Sky Moore. Granted, Tyree Kill is irreplaceable, but Andy Reid has earned the benefit of the doubt more than any other coach aside from Bill Belichick. Do you anticipate little to no drop-off from Mahomes in the offense, and how do you think the Chiefs will compensate for the loss of the Tyree Kill? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be different. It's not going to be as dynamic and it might not have the explosive, you know, downfield element that you have with Tyreek Hill. It might have, you know, the, the dynamic sort of run after the catch receiver. You might not have that element. Now you still have a yak monster in Travis Kelsey, who's one of the best at his position and generated yardage after the catch at the tight end position. Look no further than the game winner against the Chargers in overtime last year. Like they still have some of those elements. But what I think was interesting is if you think back, David, to like October, right? When all those stories will be written, the Chiefs can't figure out cover two. The Chiefs have a middle of the field open problem. Like they can't figure out cover two, cover four. I wrote that like that was hogwash at the time. Like there was a, it was a lot of bad luck. Like people were saying like, oh yeah, he's thrown like three interceptions against cover two. Yeah, there were passes that went through Tyreek Hill's hands. Like they, they, there were passes that went through Travis Kelsey's hands. There, there was a lot of interception bad luck early in the year. They would figure it out, and they figured it out. They started to piece it together. Now, what was interesting in some of the moves they made, some of the receivers they brought in, bigger catch radius guys, bigger framed guys. And Mahomes said it himself after working out with some of these guys. He's like, look, passes that I was making a couple of years prior that were incompletions, they're now getting caught. So I think it's going to be, like you said, you use that word methodical. You're going to see some seven, eight, nine, ten play drives. I think it's going to be, you know, it, it might harken back to Andy Reid's sort of roots as a West Coast, you know, minded offensive coordinator and offensive minded head coach. The tricky part, though, is going to be, will they learn from the second half against Cincinnati? Will Mahomes learn from the second half against Cincinnati? Because we all saw, we all wrote about it. We all talked about it. The Bengals went almost exclusively to drop eight in the second half, and they really forced Mahomes to be patient, to take checkdowns, to take what you know the Bengals were going to give him, to try to take big plays away, and he struggled with it. He struggled with it. You look at that sort of two-play sequence at the end of regulation where we all thought, look, they're going to score. They're going to get a touchdown. It's like first and goal. They use drop eight on like almost successive plays, and they get two sacks because Mahomes was really sort of struggling reading that out. Can he be patient? Can he settle for singles and doubles? Can he settle for checkdowns? Or is he going to do what we saw at stretches last year, force and throws into coverage? I think he can be, but that's going to be the burning question facing this Chiefs offense. Oh, absolutely. And aside from two high safeties, the uh, drop eight uh, rush three could be the next big defensive phenomenon in the NFL, as you said on this podcast uh, in uh, recent months. I will definitely be watching for that as the season gets underway. And now on to the Chargers, where just two years into his NFL career, Justin Herbert has already become one of the three to five best quarterbacks in this game. But last season, he was robbed of a playoff berth in large part due to a terrible, terrible defense. But this offseason, the Chargers brilliantly took advantage of Herbert's rookie contract and dramatically upgraded that defense. They traded for Khalil Mack, signed star cornerback J.C. Jackson, and also signed one of the most, and I mean the most, underrated run defenders in the entire NFL in Sebastian Joseph Day. And when you add all those guys to unit with Joey Bose and Derwin James, you potentially have a top five defense, if not better. Thus, many in the Twitterverse are predicting that the Chargers will be the team that comes out on top in this star-studded AFC West this season. However, one concern that Several still have, including myself as coaching. While it is very admirable, and I mean very admirable, that Brandon Staley always likes to go for on fourth down, especially when the numbers say to, it can be argued that he got too risky at times last year, which helped cost the Chargers some key games, including that uh, Week 18 thriller in uh, Las Vegas. Do you think that Brandon Staley can't afford to take the points similar times this season, especially since he's going to have a defense that is far more equipped to protect the lead? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the balancing act that he's going to have to go through this year. I mean, you know, I remember the regular season win against the Chiefs when he had some fourth down decisions that a lot of people sort of, you know, 
took exception to it worked out for them you know they get the benefit of some some calls down the end of that game there but improving the defense was clearly a top there to do list and you look at the jc jackson acquisition the khalil mack you mentioned sebastian joseph day you know if you're going to be brandon staley you know the too high world the middle of the field open stuff cover two cover four quarters all that stuff that helped you get this job to begin with it's a lot easier when you've got aaron donald you know, and you're sort of designing defenses for him. Like you need guys that can take that extra gap. Can Joseph Day do that? He can help them. You know, Kyle Van Noy is another nice little acquisition for them. You can do some stuff with him, some pressure stuff with him. And so I think they finally got the people they need on the defensive side of the ball to get some stops, which will give him the confidence in some situations to take three points. Like, like they just take points when you get them, you know, I, I appreciate, like you, the aggression at times. And I think there are times when the numbers dictate that, yeah, you know, you're in a better position if you go for it, even if you get stopped. Certainly, I expect to see some of that still, but there might be some of those moments, given certain situations, certain opponents, certain conditions, where you might say, yeah, the numbers are this, but, you know, it, it's 45 degrees out and it's blustery. Like, I don't think they can throw in these conditions. Let's just take three points here and move on. Absolutely. And now on to the other two teams in this star-studded division, the Broncos and the Raiders. Uh, this spring, after the Broncos traded for Russell Wilson and after the Raiders traded for Devontae Adams and signed Chandler Jones, several in the media rushed, and I mean rushed, to proclaim them as Super Bowl contenders. However, many rightfully convinced us to pump the brakes on each of those takes. As talented as these two teams are, they both have very similar questions and shortcomings. First of all, the offensive lines in both Vegas and in Denver are just average at best. Moreover, each team has a big, and I mean a big mystery on defense. For the Broncos, it's their post-Von Miller pass rush, and for the Raiders, it's their secondary. And according to Bill Belichick, you need both, and I mean both, a good pass rush and a good secondary in order to be a good defense in today's NFL. If your pass rush is bad or if your secondary is bad, your defense just ain't going to be good the way football is played today. That's all there is to it. But that said, I'm also not ready to say that the Broncos or Raiders are clearly the worst team in the division, and I still would not be shocked under my shoes if either team finishes first or second in the division. What do you think is the key to such a finish for Denver and for Vegas? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for both teams, I think it really sort of starts on the defensive side of the ball. Like, like, can you get some stops? Can you get some takeaways? Can you get pressure on the quarterback? Can you cover things up in the secondary? I mean, I, I think you're exactly right, David, you know, when you look at, for example, what they've got in Denver, like you really like the secondary, but you've got some questions about the guys up front. Can they sort of generate pass rush? And you flip it, you know, that sort of mirror image when you look at the Raiders, like Max Crosby, like played himself into one of the premier edges in the National Football League last year with a fantastic season. But if they double team him and, you know, they can't get home, are you going to have coverage on the back end? It's almost a situation where, if you could mesh those two defenses together, you'd have perhaps one of the best defenses in the league, but can't do that. Who we are, you know, so I think both teams have to answer a lot of questions on the defensive side of the ball. You know, I've, I've said for years that Carr is one of the more underappreciated quarterbacks in the league. And I remember writing back in 19 uh, over a Matt Waldman site that look, put him in like Josh McDaniels hands and you'll see exactly what he can be as a quarterback. And I think we're going to see that this year. You know, I, I think, that offense is going to be good. I think both offenses, Denver's and the Raiders, are going to be good. It just comes down to which team can sort of get some stops, create some turnovers. And I think if I'm going to give the edge to one, I, you know, it, it's a question of which do you value more, even though you need both equally. 
I'm kind of a believer as somebody that like played quarterback and knows the impact of what pressure can do to you. Since the Raiders can get some pressure, we've seen it before that might give them the edge. It might indeed, but you're literally splitting hairs between these two teams by predicting where they'll end up in the division. They're so, so close to each other, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I've said this all summer long. Like you can tell me that, you, you know, if it's a back to the future two situation and you're coming back and you've got the sports almanac and you're like, the Raiders won the AFC West this year. I'd be like, yeah, okay. I, I can see it happening. If you told me any of these teams, if you came back in time and told me any of these teams win the division this year, I could see it. Like it's a very, very talented division. You have four of the game's top 12 quarterbacks in this division. Like that's how good it is going to be. Um, you know, so if you're going to tell me that any one of these teams can win, any of one of these teams did win it, sure, I could see a case for it. Whoever comes out of this division, you know, it might be, you know, 10 and 7 that wins the division because you're going to have some slugfest between these teams. They're going to be ready to make a run in the postseason because they will certainly have been tested. Oh, absolutely. I could not agree more. And now let's talk about two teams that have assembled deep and talented rosters for the season and beyond in the Miami Dolphins and the Philadelphia Eagles. Both teams have cachets of offensive playmakers that keep defensive coordinators up at night, deep defensive fronts, and star-studded cornerback tandems. But neither team's quarterback situation inspires that much confidence. I don't intend to be mean here, as I hope both quarterbacks have elite seasons and prove me wrong, but which of the two quarterbacks do you think caps their respective team's ceiling the most? Jalen Hurts or Tua Tungavoiloa? You know, the guy that I have more faith in right now is Hurts. Um, you know, and I was seeing that Eagles offense evolve last year and seeing Nick Sirianni evolve sort of as a play caller makes me believe that like Hertz is in a very good position to take a nice leap this year. Now, I, I think like you, like both of these guys can be successful, but I have more confidence in Hertz. And it's it's almost similar to the conversation about Zach Wilson at the start of the show where you could see at the start of the year, Hertz was one read, maybe a second read, and then he's pulling the football down. And then there's sort of that Denver game where he, there's literally a play where you could see him fight that urge. He starts to pull the ball down. Then he resets himself and makes a throw from the pocket. And it's around that time, that sort of, you know, Detroit Denver sequence of the season where Sirianni really flipped the switch as a play caller, because going into that game, that stretch, they were the most pass heavy team on first downs. And then they realized, look, we've got to get Hurts into some second and four situations, some, some, some third and five situations. And by the time the season ended, they were like the most run-heavy team on first down. Now, I know we're living in the era of running backs don't matter and the passing game is Ken, and you know I believe all of that. But Sirianni identified what he needed to do to put his quarterback in a position to be successful. Now we have you know year two of these two at the helm, and you have the acquisition of A.J. Brown. And why that's huge it puts him at the X. So you can take Devonta Smith, get him into that off-ball slot flanker type of role because Smith was great last year, but there were some situations where bigger-bodied, more physical corners could pin him to the boundary, could sort of get into him. Now, if you're going to move him around a bit, give him a sort of two-way go, a little bit of an easier release. A.J. Brown is your prototypical X receiver. It's got this like cascading effect on that offense. And so I think the offense is going to be better. Hertz is going to be better. Sirianni's evolved as a play caller. And let's not forget what they have on defense. You know, when you add in, you know, Jordan Davis in the first round, we talked about, look, if Jonathan Gannon wants to play, keep playing off coverages and playing middle field open, you need that guy that could steal that second gap up front. Davis can do that. You get N'Kobe Dean in the third round. People were like, oh, N'Kobe Dean, yeah, he's great at Georgia, but 
He's not going to be able to play behind Jordan Davis and Devonta Wyatt. Well, surprise, he's going to be playing behind at least one of them, uh, you know, as a rookie in the NFL. Darius Slay is in an ideal situation in Gannon's off, Gannon's off coverages. They bring in Hassan Reddick. Look, I, I think they're in a position to have a very good year, and I think Hertz is in a position to have a very good year as well. Oh, I agree. Nick Sirianni, the job he did last season was absolutely masterful. And uh, we'll see if Mike McDaniel can uh, have a similar campaign his rookie season as a head coach. And now on to the desert, where last week, after a rather dramatic offseason between the two camps, cooler heads finally prevailed as the Cardinals signed Kyler Murray to a massive contract extension. But now the pressure is squarely on Murray to continue to improve and justify that investment. And he faces an uphill battle to start the 2022 season as he will be without all pro wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins for the first six games due to a suspension. And when you compare the numbers Murray posted with Hopkins last season to those without Hopkins, the difference is staggering. Look at the completion percentage, 72% completion percentage with Hopkins, 65% without a 108.1 pass rating with Hopkins, 89.7 without. 8.8 yards per attempt with Hopkins, 6.6 without. 18 touchdowns to eight interceptions with Hopkins, six touchdowns to two interceptions without. Thus, you can see Kyler Murray has been extremely dependent on DeAndre Hopkins, who should be a future Hall of Famer uh, down the road. But what is the best way for Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray to overcome Hopkins' absence in those first six games? You know, that's sort of a a million-dollar question. Um, and the best way to do it is to sort of get out of their comfort zone, you know, and this is going to force them to do that because, you know, this is an organization, you know, this is an offense that the past couple of years, they would have this sec- sort of second half swoon, right? You know, and you, you've seen the numbers, you've seen the losses down the stretch, you've seen the inability to sort of sustain drives down the stretch. They got so sort of rooted in what they were doing. They weren't inventive enough. Teams sort of figured them out. Now they have to sort of get out of that comfort zone at the start of the year because you won't have Hopkins. You won't have the ability to just put him in, you know, line him on the left side, have him run a comeback and trust that he's going to be open. Like you're not going to have that. I think you've got to do some stuff with Rondale Moore. I think you've got to get him some sort of manufactured touches. The acquisition of Marquise Brown, you're going to need to get him involved downfield. You're going to sort of look to the, uh, you know, play action, some short routes, some short plays, some over routes and things like that. Zach Ertz is still a very effective tight end. So you're going to have him as well, sort of attack the middle of the field. If you get those sort of two high looks, he can sort of attack that, you know, area between the safety. So there are things that they can do. There are players that they can call upon to get through this sort of early game stretch when they're not going to be with Hopkins. And what's interesting is you sort of think about those late season swoons that might ultimately help them avoid it because then they'll get Hopkins back and they'll be able to do some of the things. They'll sort of be able to get into that comfort zone a little bit more. They'll have their go-to guy in the passing game back. And so, you know, I, I would look for Brown to be a big part of this. I would look for Ertz to be a big part of this. I'd look for more to get some manufactured touches. And let's not forget, they gave Murray the big deal, partly because, look, you had to, right? If you have the guy, you got to pay him. But his ability to create explosive plays inside the pocket, outside the pocket, and with his legs – that's huge in today's NFL. He can do that. So that's going to be how they sort of get through this early game stretch without Hawkins. Absolutely. And if there is one division other than the AFC West that I think is absolutely loaded, at least on paper, it's the AFC North. That was uh, one of the most competitive divisions, if not the most competitive division in the NFL last year. And uh, it could give the AFC West a run for its money in certain ways. And we start in Pittsburgh, where in terms of training cap position battles, none will be watched more on a national level than the battle to become the immediate successor to Ben Roethlisberger. 
And it's a three-horse race between Mitchell Trubisky, Mason Rudolph, and 2022 first-round pick Kenny Pickett. Thus, my two-part question to you, Mark, is A, how good of a chance do you think Kenny Pickett has to be the man under center for the Steelers in week one? And B, who do you think wins that job? Yeah, I think Pickett has a very good chance. And, you know, if I may be so bold, I say he wins it, you know. And part of it is when you watch this sort of evolution of Pittsburgh in college and you sort of see what he was asked to do and how he was able to perform, you know, in that offense and with what he was asked to do, you know, I know this wasn't the sexiest quarterback class. We only had the one first round pick. We didn't have anybody in the second round. We had to wait till the third round to hear the next couple of quarterbacks called. You know, it's led some to believe that, look, it wasn't a great class. But I think Pickett stood out with his ability to sort of play early, his ability to play right away, his ability to take on a lot from a mental perspective and work through things and solve some problems with his mind. And, you know, I think he's in a very good position to win that job. You know, what's going to be interesting is what might decide that is how comfortable they feel about their offensive line. You know, if they feel that they can protect the quarterback, that Pickett's going to have a real good chance to, to come out week one as the starter, because that's an area where, you know, I, I felt like he needed to have a really good offensive line in front of him, like his response to pressure, particularly when he's not expecting it, where it's coming from an unexpected angle, wasn't as consistent as I'd like it to be. And I think if they feel comfortable with the offensive line, they're going to feel pretty comfortable handing them the keys to their offense, because, you know, you, you mentioned it with Herbert, right? That's the model, like the rookie deal, the rookie window, like if you sit a rookie quarterback for a half a season, a full season, you know, and, and unless you've got talent and you can make a run with the incumbent starter or whoever is taking snaps, like you've got to maximize that window. You're just burning a year of the rookie deal. And so I think from Pittsburgh's perspective, if they feel that they can protect them, Pickett's going to be the guy. Oh, absolutely. Even if Pickett ties Mitchell Trubisky uh, in the training camp battle, Ty goes to the rookie, give the keys to him, completely agree there. And if there is a legit Super Bowl contender in the AFC that's being slept on, it's the Baltimore Ravens. Last season, despite historically, I mean historically bad injury luck across the board, they still managed to win eight games. And in addition, they lost five of their final six games by margins of one, two, one, one, and three, respectively. And most importantly, we saw enormous growth from Lamar Jackson as a passer, especially early in the season in those cover behind efforts against the Chiefs and the Colts. I understand the question marks the Ravens have when it comes to a rush the passer outside of Odafe Owe and uh, Justin Houston, although Houston is a little old, who, who's going to help Odafe Owe get to the quarterback and wide receiver depth behind Rashad Bateman. But based on the inevitable regression to the mean when it comes to injuries and close games, are the Ravens a great bet to win the AFC North in 2022? I think they are. I think they are a very good bet. And, you know, you mentioned Lamar at the start of the year. Like he looked like, look, this is the guy, like he's making reads and throws and all the stuff you want to see from the pocket stuff that he was doing at Louisville that he didn't get enough credit for. I mean, I've got, you know, his coach's book, just Bobby Petrillo's book outside my arms right now. And he talks at length about what Lamar is asked to do in that offense. He's a pocket passer. That is also a Supreme athlete. Like are there areas where he still needs to improve? Yeah. Yeah. You know, throws outside the number and things like that, but this is an offense that sort of runs through the middle, like both in the passing game and in the run game. Like they work through the tight ends and the backs. Like they work over the middle as much as they can. They certainly have Lamar Jackson. You look at what they added in the draft. I mean, Linderbaum and Hamilton, two of the best players by far at their position, right? And they slid down boards due to positional value arguments. And while I understand that, Baltimore had a very good draft. You look at some of the pieces they had a little bit later. Travis Jones, people thought might slip into the first round. They get him in the third. I mean, 
David Ojabo is probably going to be sort of a medical redshirt, but to get that value there, I thought was a very nice piece of business as well. And so the injuries they had and the fact that they were still close in these games, they're an extremely talented team. And, you know, I am not going to bet against Lamar, particularly after the discourse we've had this summer. And I think, yeah, a, a team that, like you said, people are sleeping on Baltimore Ravens. Oh, absolutely. And uh, don't forget Kyle Hamilton, who many, including you guys, the USA Today Touchdown Wire had as the best overall prospect in the 2022 NFL draft. And you pair him with Marcus Williams to form a potentially elite safety combo and new defensive coordinator, Mike McDonald, who's uh, coming over from the University of Michigan with uh, John Harbaugh's uh, brother, Jim. Um, I think he is going to run more of a Vic Fangio kind of defense, especially with those two safeties, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I remember Benjamin Solak writing that about Hamilton pre-draft. Like, if we're really moving into this sort of split safety too high world, like, you need two very versatile type of players. And, and now they've got that. You've got guys like, like, I know a lot of people looked at Hamilton. They said, yeah, he doesn't have, like, the lawn speed. He's not super fast. Doesn't have a great 40. Well, then don't play him in single high. Like, if you're going to ask him to be half field and go, you know, seam to sideline, he can certainly do that. And he solves a lot of problems or he solved a lot of problems while he was in Notre Dame with his mind, with anticipating route concepts coming forward and reading quarterbacks and breaking well before the break. It's sort of the flip side to the arm talent question with quarterbacks, right? Guy doesn't have a great arm. Well, how does he solve the problem with his mind? Guy's not a great athlete, a great linear athlete at the safety position. He can solve problems with his mind. And that's what Hamilton did in college. And so I think you're right. They're going to see a lot more Fangio split safety kind of stuff. And I think they got two really good safeties to do that with. And your friendly PSA that linear speed is not the best indicator of success at the pro level for the safety position. That is all there is to it, folks. Take that to the bank. And on to the AFC champion, Cincinnati Bengals, who likely would have hoisted that Lombardi trophy after Super Bowl 56 if they didn't have that god-awful offensive line play they had last season. Thus, they spent big on offensive line upgrades this spring with Alex Kappa, Ted Karras, and Lyle Collins. As promising as that unit now is, a potential wrench has been thrown into their development cycle with the confirmed news of Joe Burrow's appendectomy. Burrow could miss multiple weeks of training camp as he recovers. So what I want to know is, where exactly can the Spangles' offensive line end up relative to the rest of the league, and how much will Joe Burrow's absence harm their ability to improve cohesion? You know, I, I don't think the absence of Burrow is going to be that big of a detriment because you know where Joe Burrow, for the most part, is going to be in the pocket. You know, and as you're sort of building offensive line cohesion, it's one thing to do it for an athletic quarterback that might pull it down and go. Like, if this were a Kyler Murray situation, if this were a Lamar Jackson situation, a Jalen Hurts, where you're trying to feel out, like, when is he going to bail the pocket? Like, how mobile does is he going to be? And how mobile do I have to be? How quickly do I have to change directions if he's going to break the pocket? It's not like that. For the most part, you know what Burrow's going to be. And so I think they could still sort of build that cohesion. You know, in terms of the appendectomy, it's fantastic they're getting this done now. You know, the science is where it is. Like, I had my appendectomy when I was in high school. That was a long time ago. <laughs> and while I wasn't cleared for contact, you know, I was up and about in a couple of weeks. It's going to be that much better for Burrow right now. And so I, I think that the fact that they're getting it done, you know, he'll be ready, you know, probably mid to, you know, preseason game three or something like that. They'll get some reps with them. But it's not a situation where you're really learning how to block for a guy that's all over the place. Like, Burrow is a pocket passer who can move. He's not a really athletic, mobile, super elite type of athlete that you have to get that feel down for. 
He is Mark Schofield, ladies and gentlemen, of the USA Today Touchdown Wire. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield and go to the USA Today Touchdown Wire to catch the amazing work that he and Doug Farrar do. It is some of the best NFL content you will find on the internet, folks. That's all there is to it. And Mark, thank you so much once again for joining us tonight. But before we let you go, I want to ask you about the two teams we are going to see to start the NFL season six weeks from Thursday night. The defending champion Los Angeles Rams and the team that most are predicting to win Super Bowl 57, the Buffalo Bills. And uh, the Buffalo Bills arguably have the most complete roster in the NFL and are led by one of the game's three best quarterbacks in Josh Allen, who could very, very well make a push to be considered as the best quarterback in the game this season. In March, a few months after watching their pass rush collapse in heartbreaking fashion against the Chiefs in those uh, 13 seconds in that legendary playoff game, they added Von Miller to be that final piece of the Super Bowl puzzle. While I still believe Von has a few good years left in the tank, the Bills are also going to need more help up front to help keep opposing offensive lines from double-teaming him religiously. Thus, two players, almost as important as Von in being that final puzzle piece in Buffalo, in my view, are defensive tackle Ed Oliver and second-year defensive end Gregory Rousseau. Of those two players, which one would you anticipate becoming the Robin Devon's Batman? That's a great question, David. I think it's Rousseau. You know, it's it, seeing some of what he did last year off the edges. You saw the flashes. You saw the length. Like, you know, even when he wasn't getting home, he was able to disrupt throwing lands. Like, I think he had a tipped interception. I believe it was against Mahomes early in the year in the regular season. And he showed to me that, you know, yeah, he was sort of a raw-er type prospect coming out, but his ability to be that sort of lawn athletic presence off the edge, you saw flashes of it last year. And now, look, as I've said to you many times, I always try to put myself in the mind of an opposing offensive coordinator, right? Who are you sliding protection to? Like, like who are you going to double? It's going to be until you're proven wrong. You're going to slide that protection to Vaughn Miller. Like, that's what you're going to do. You're going to slide it 40 way. That's going to give Rousseau some one-on-ones. Interestingly enough, you know, I think the safety tandem that they have, Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, it's the best in the league. It is the best in the league. Myself, Doug Farrar, we've been saying this to anybody who would listen for the past couple of years now. They can solve so many problems with that defense. You get Tredavious White back. Teron Johnson is one of the game's better slot corners. Kair Elam, the rookie, that could be a very good secondary now, too. Now, plus, like you said, you've got 17. Like, like, uh, the growth we have seen from Josh Allen. I mean, you and I remember being at the senior bowl watching him and it's like, he's trying to do accuracy drills. He couldn't hit the net, let alone the target. And now he might be QB one in the league. Like, like he was QB two when I ranked him. I almost did it one, but I had Mahomes one. He is that dynamic weapon that can solve so many problems with his arm, with his legs, with his mind. The growth has been incredible. It pains me to say it as a Patriots guy, but, yeah, this looks like the team to beat, at least in the AFC, if not the NFL at large. Definitely. And on to the defending Super Bowl champions. And when you look at the Rams this season, aside from losing Von Miller, they return with their championship core largely intact, along with one of the biggest, and I mean the biggest steals in free agency. And I'm obviously talking about Allen Robinson, who will easily be playing with the best quarterback he's ever played with in his entire career in Matthew Stafford. At this time, Odell Beckham Jr. remains unsigned, but A-Rob and Cooper Cup are easily one of the top five wide receiver duos in the NFL. What does Allen Robinson bring to this Rams offense that neither OBJ nor Robert Woods did? You know, that's an interesting question. And I, I think what he brings is some versatility. 
you know, Odell is a very good wide receiver and they incorporated him really quickly into their offense. But what really sort of stands out to me studying Robinson for the past couple of years is his ability to win downfield in the vertical game, his ability, ability to win at the line of scrimmage early, his ability to generate yardage after the catch, even when his quarterback wasn't doing a good job of getting the ball on time and in rhythm. And I think that sort of versatility, that ability to impact all three levels of the field is something that he certainly offers that maybe Odell in his limited time in that offense couldn't quite figure out. Now, the, the sort of question that I have, and maybe this is an area where Van Jefferson's going to have to step up, the run game. You know, what they lost in Robert Woods was a component of their run game. Woods was a very good receiver for them, but he did a lot of stuff from a blocking standpoint, you know, front side on some of their outside zone, wide zone stuff, you know, some insert blocks and things like that. Is Jefferson going to do that? Is Robinson going to be asked to do that? Is that going to be something we're going to see another receiver have to sort of step up and do that? So I'm waiting to see how that plays out, David, but you're the defending Super Bowl champs. You know, you added some, some talent on the offensive side of the ball. Bobby Wagner can still play at a really high level. He's not the Bobby Wagner of say, you know, five years ago or something like that, but he's still an elite linebacker. Jalen Ramsey is a game changer in the secondary. It's still a very, very, very talented team. It most certainly is. And once again, he is Mark Schofield of the USA Today Touchdown Wire. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Mark, thank you so much once again for an outstanding night of football discussion. And that's it for now here on Sports Crunch. But my right-hand man, Hal Bent, returns next week to help us do a deep dive into the buzz emanating from all 32 NFL training camps. And in case you missed it, I highly, highly, Highly recommend that you check out our special six-part Beyond the Chap series with the 2022 Denver Broncos cheerleaders. They contain a lot of powerful life lessons that can help you in whatever you are currently doing. Meanwhile, be sure to follow me on Twitter at dcrom 59 and on Instagram and now TikTok at SportsCrunch with dcrom. And remember, that's Crunch with a K. For Mark Schofield, this is David Cromwell saying so long, and whatever you do, please choose love, please choose kindness, please choose compassion, please choose empathy, and keep the people of Buffalo, Uvalde, Texas, Highland Park, Illinois, and the brave, inspiring people of Ukraine and your thoughts, prayers, and whatever actions possible. Until next time, cats, kittens, stay cool.